You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles this afternoon to our first reading in Exodus chapter 19, the verses 1 through 6. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel encamped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And we'll turn now to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to John chapter 10. We'll read the verses 1 through 21. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again, this command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism, Question and answer 54. What do you believe concerning the holy Catholic Christian Church? 
I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself, by his Spirit and Word, in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am, and forever shall remain, a living member of it. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, considering, as we heard this morning, that although the night is nearly over, it is not yet completely over, it shouldn't surprise us that we still experience and see a lot of despair and confusion around us. You look at what's happening in the world, and, and often you're, you're led to those two reactions, despair at the state of things and confusion about what's going on. You look at the state of politics, for example, especially recently it seems, and, and the lack of integrity that has afflicted many politicians in, in our country in a very public way, and it leaves you feeling a sense of despair and confusion. You look at, for another example, the situation in the Philippines after that typhoon and the destruction that has been wreaked upon those people there. And that also, if it doesn't leave us with a state of despair and confusion, can trust that it certainly does for them. Sure, there's a lot of despair and a lot of confusion. You can think even of this the state of the church throughout the world, the persecuted church, despair and confusion. It can surprise us, in fact, when we look at the church, that we do often have those two reactions, don't we? That you look at the church and the state of things in this world, and you experience this sense of despair. And you have this confusion in your mind. Despair, because when you look out over the church in the world today, there's much that's troubling from without and within. Despair also, because when you look through history, you see this is nothing new. Whenever I teach church history to catechism students, pre-confession students, I warn them that studying church history can actually be quite a depressing thing to do. It can be quite a depressing topic to see how much strife, how much division, how much fighting, misunderstanding, misdirection, and whatnot there is in the church. And confusion, because when we look at the church, we wonder, how is this so? Where did this confusing mess come from? Those are real reactions that we have when we consider the church. But as we consider the Word of God this afternoon, no, we should say we are considering the Word of God this afternoon that we might properly understand the church. And so that our reaction would not be despair and confusion, but rather joy and thankfulness and clear purpose. Because when we properly understand the church, then we realize that the life of the church is not found in in what often looks like a mess here in this world or looks like a mess in the history books. We realize that the life of the church 
her existence, her identity, her confidence is found not in herself, but outside of herself in Jesus Christ. That's where our life is as the church. Not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. That's where we must look. And so when we consider what Jesus Christ is doing in this world through his church, yes, when we believe, when we believe in what Jesus Christ is doing, then we're led not to despair and confusion, but rather to joy and to confidence. And so this afternoon we'll consider that the church finds her life not in herself, but in Jesus Christ. She finds her existence in the sovereign work of Jesus Christ. She finds her identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she finds her confidence by looking in faith to Jesus Christ. So the church finds her existence in the sovereign work of Jesus Christ. And that's that's the point. That's the, the clear message, teaching of Question and answer 54 in the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I was struck by that this week in studying this. That the Catechism doesn't almost kind of scratch its head and put its elbows down on its desk and go, I'm not really sure what I believe about the church when I consider the state of things. No. The Catechism points us to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. What do you believe about the church? I believe that the Son of God is at work. That he is gathering, defending, and preserving for himself. In this first point, we'll go through most of those phrases there at the beginning of the answer. So we start that the Son of God is gathering, defending, and preserving for himself. What does for himself mean? Is he in competition with the Father in this work? No, not at all. But it means to, to be his own. But he's not building a kingdom for himself. No, we can hear the words of John ten twenty one. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So after he's finished speaking about how he's the good shepherd and he's gathering his sheep... He says that, in fact, the work he's doing is the Father's work. He and the Father are one. They work for the same purpose. The Son is gathering what the Father has chosen. The Father elects from all eternity. The Father has his plan. And he sends his Son, Jesus Christ, to effectually call his elect into communion with him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to rise again, and then to work through his spirit to effectually call those who are his. So Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who goes and who calls the sheep by name and they follow him and he leads them. He's the good shepherd. He not only calls them, he also defends them. In John 10, the Lord Jesus contrasts himself with that that bad shepherd, the hired hand, the one who runs away when the trouble comes. Jesus says, I not only call my sheep, but I defend them. I lay down my life for them. But the trouble for the sheep doesn't only come from thieves who want to come in and steal and from wolves who will seek to attack and devour the sheep, but it also comes in the form of, of wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing. 
Those who infiltrate the flock and seek to divide and destroy it from within. And of course, it's not only those evil wolves that threaten us. We know that in our own hearts, in our own desires, and our own sins threaten us as well. We are, after all, sheep. It's quite something that continually God's people are compared with sheep. Sheep are not that smart. Sheep are prone to wander. We are sheep. And yes, we are constantly under attack. As God's flock, we are constantly under attack. Whether it's it's persecution of the Christians in the East and, and they face that threat from day to day, or whether it's it's the self-destruction of the church through materialism and apathy that we face day after day in the West. Whether that threat is doctrinal error or doctrinal apathy, whether it's progressivism or traditionalism, whether it's the temptations outside or the desires within, the forces of darkness against the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ are, are relentless. But the point is this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gathers, defends, and preserves his church. He does it. And he promised that he would build his church, and even the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against it. Yes, the enemy will attack, and yes, the attack will be relentless, but the Lord Jesus Christ will not lose any who are his own. He's the Son of God, and he's the one who gathers, defends, and preserves his church. And he does this work out of the whole human race. The whole human race. This is the work that Jesus Christ is doing. And he's doing it throughout the world. He's at the right hand of, of God. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's sovereignly gathering his people. The elect of the Father. From all lands and peoples and tribes and languages and places. He is doing this work. And what he's doing when he does that, as this very clearly says and is very consistent with what the word of God teaches, is calling people out, out of the world. We know that God loves the world. In fact, he so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And we know as well that we're called to love our neighbor. So that's the attitude that God has toward the world, and that's the attitude that we ought to have toward the world. But we must also remember that what the gospel does, what our Lord Jesus Christ sovereignly does, is call sinners out of the world. He calls them out of their sin. He says, there's something wrong with your life. He calls them out of that. He calls them out of their self-sufficiency. He says, you can't do it on your own. He calls them out of it. He calls them out of their unbelief. He says, you must believe in me. And he calls them all into this this colony of heaven, which is called the church. The canons of Dort, actually, capture this beautifully in several of its articles. And speaking about the mass of humanity, corrupt, depraved, lost in sin, and, and heading toward a condemnation of their own desire heading to where they want to go to hell. But God, 
The Lord Jesus Christ, sovereignly in his power, rescuing some, calling effectually some out of that stream headed to condemnation and saving them for the glory of God. God is calling his church out of this world. And he's doing it from the beginning of the world to its end. An unbroken line from Adam beginning with him and continuing unbroken until today, God has always preserved his own. God has always gathered his people. God has always protected them in their time of need. The church is exhibit A of the faithfulness of God and of his power to preserve a people that are his very own. And how does he accomplish this? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes this by his spirit and word. He uses his means. God doesn't just zap people into heaven. He doesn't just, he doesn't bribe them certainly with fancy cars or with a nice house saying, Hey, this is, this is the carrot. This is the bait. Maybe you want this. No, he doesn't use that. He doesn't coerce them by the sword. He doesn't dupe them. Through logical tricks. These aren't the means that God, that the Lord Jesus Christ uses to build his church. He works through his two simple but profound means. His spirit and his word. Always working together in cooperation with one another. The word is the word that that speaks about Jesus Christ. It speaks of the gospel speaks, it is the power of God. The word is this, it's it's the Bible. It's the scriptures that we've had handed down to us. That's a book that's like no other, because this book is alive. It's a living book. It's powerful. And this book is written by God. This is God's own word revealing to us Jesus Christ For our salvation. Yes. God's own world. Revealing Jesus Christ to this whole world. That whoever would believe. Would be saved. It's powerful. God has written this book. And it's powerful. It's powerful enough to save lives. It's powerful enough to change lives. It's powerful enough to change the way you think and act and feel. And the Spirit is the one who gives this book its power. The Spirit is the one who works through the Word to bring Christ near to us, to reveal Christ to us. The Spirit is the one who builds our confidence in this Word. Why do we have confidence in this book? Why do we believe what it says? Why do we know to the point of death that what this Bible says is true? Ultimately, it's because the Spirit works that confidence in us. The Spirit gives us that confidence. That's how we know we trust in God's Word. The Spirit works with the Word. We have to note that, especially today. The Spirit works with the world. When we when we speak about Christ gathering His church through His Spirit and His Word, it's not like not like He's using 
Sometimes he uses the word, you know, you can become a Christian through reading the Bible. And, and other times he uses his spirit, you know, and, and the spirit works in some way without the word. No, these two means are working together hand in hand. Not that we say that, well, okay, God, God spoke to me through a dream or, or through an audible voice. That's how I know what to do. No, the spirit uses the word. And the word is powerful and it's sufficient. It's what God has given us. The spirit of Christ uses the word of Christ to save us, to change us, to teach us, and to guide his church in all things. And these are not our means. It's a good thing. We don't use our means to build Christ's church. It would be a mess. No, these are Christ's means. The Lord Jesus Christ, remember, is the one who's building his church. And so the church finds her existence through the sovereign work and power of Jesus Christ. We find our identity in the second place in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are Christ's church. And at the very heart of that reality is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his his death and resurrection at its core. It's, it's in the gospel, in what Jesus Christ has done, that the church finds her identity. We don't find our identity anywhere else. We don't find our identity anywhere other than what Christ has done for us. If we look for it somewhere else, we will lose our identity. If we look for our identity somewhere else, We will lose our identity. We will cease to be the church. No, we gain our identity from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are the characteristics of the church that reveal our our identity. We're going to move now sort of from the, the catechism here into the Nicene Creed, which speaks about four characteristics of the church, that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Four characteristics of the church. And we'll see how these four characteristics are related to the gospel. And we'll also see in that, that when we speak about our identity, it means really two things. It is who we are. A church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And at the same time, it's who we're called to be. That we must always seek to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Maybe you've seen a parent using this with their children. They, they talk to their, their child's misbehaving and they say to them, hey, remember who you are. Remember who you are. That's saying, yes, yes, you, you are my child. You are in our family. There's this way that we act within our family. But it's also a call for that child to remember to keep acting like that. So we'll consider the identity of the church in that sense. The church is one. The church is one. A simple truth, but a profound one. Jesus Christ does not have two churches. He has one. He has one church, one flock, one shepherd. And so the church is united. And, and what are we united in? What unites us? Well, it is our Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's one shepherd, there's one 
flock. We are united in him and in the gospel, in the good news of what he's done. We we are united with him through the gospel. So it is the gospel that unites us to him. And this unity, which is a spiritual reality, because Jesus Christ does have one church, must strive for that expression on the ground. And this is where we get into the confusion. It means, it presents a lot of difficulties saying that Jesus Christ has one flock. But we don't gain anything by suggesting that that's not true. In fact, in fact, he has many flocks. No, he has one. It means we don't always have things sorted out. But it also means a calling for us as church to pursue deeper unity earnestly and faithfully with the flock of Jesus Christ. It means we have to be a church that's committed to uniting ourselves with other faithful churches. There's this, this call to unity that we have. We have to put away pride and envy and anything that, that hinders us from unity. And we have to be filled with love for Christ and his church, for the one church of Jesus Christ. So the church is one. It's also holy. What does it mean that the church is holy? Well, it means that we are cleansed through the gospel. It doesn't mean that the church is filled with perfect people. It doesn't mean that people who are in the church don't sin. That's not true. And if that was true, we'd all be kicked out. No, the church is those people who are cleansed through the gospel, both definitively and progressively. The the salutation of 1 Corinthians actually sums this up perfectly when Paul writes this to the church of God in Corinth. Remember, from what we know about the letter in Corinth, there were sinners in that church as well. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, they are sanctified in Christ. By virtue of their union with Christ, the words of 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, what Paul will later write to that church are true. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you are. You are the holy people of God. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because his work is powerful enough to cleanse you from all your sin. He's speaking about a new status that you have, that you gain through the blood of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, they're still called to be holy. While they have that definitive new status, the practical realities haven't always worked themselves out, as that letter to the Corinthians shows. All those realities aren't worked out. And so they're still, and we are still as well, called to be holy. The third characteristic of the church is that she is Catholic. Catholic. What does it mean to be Catholic? This is probably the characteristic that causes the most confusion because people will think when you're talking about the Catholic church, you're talking about the Roman Catholic church. But what does it mean to be Catholic? To, to be Catholic does not mean to be Roman Catholic. It means precisely, in fact, what the Heidelberg Catechism says, that it is the church being gathered from all places and all peoples at all times. That's what it means to be Catholic. That the church is being gathered from all places and all peoples at all times. 
And so through Christ's work by his word and spirit, the church is Catholic. It is Catholic. The church is spread around this world. And at the same time, we're called to be Catholic as well. We're called to be not sectarian. To not suppose that that we have a corner on the church here in Langley at this time and place. We're called not to be independent, to reach out and cooperate with other churches. We're called not to be autonomous, but to seek the help of others. Our Catholic calling is one to be humble and not proud. And to accept that the triune God is building his church. And in fact, he's building his church in, in places that we don't even know about. And peep among peoples and in situations that we have no clue about. But we're not involved in. Because this is the, the work of Jesus Christ. His church is Catholic. But we can be sure of this. Though we may not know about this work or where it's being done, we can be sure of this. His church is always grounded in the truth of his word. Because that's another characteristic of the church. That it's apostolic. Apostolic. That the church is apostolic means that it's founded on the same gospel that the disciples, the apostles of Jesus Christ proclaimed. Whether it was the early church or whether it's here in Langley, halfway across the world from there, approaching 2,000 years after that New Testament was written, Christ's church is always built on the same foundation. And it's the foundation that Paul and Peter and John laid. It's the foundation that they laid in the New Testament. And that itself is, is built upon and affirms the truth of the Old Testament. So to speak of the apostolic church is to speak of the church that's founded on the word of God. New Testament and old. And there are many facets and aspects to this apostolic truth. We're called to search the scriptures and to test every doctrine and every teaching to ensure that we today are still building on the same foundation that the apostles were building in the time that they gave us, that the Spirit through them gave us the New Testament. And there are many aspects of that, but the center is always the same. It's the same message that stood at the heart of Peter's, Paul's, and John's letter of the Gospels, of the visions of John. The center, the identifying core of the church is the finished work of Jesus Christ in dying for our sins and coming to life for our justification. That's the truth in which the church has always found its identity. And that's the truth in which the church has always found its confidence as well. As we consider that the church finds our confidence by looking in faith to Jesus Christ. And so it's true that church history is a sad and sordid kind of history. But just as the church doesn't find her identity in looking to herself, but instead looking to the gospel of Jesus Christ, neither does she find her confidence by looking in herself. And this has always been true, hasn't it? This is consistent with the message of God's word. Where did Abraham find his confidence when his body was as good as dead? You look at his body and say, oh yeah, I I think I might still have a son in my old age. 
We didn't find his confidence there. Where did David find his confidence when he stared down the sword of Goliath? Where did Nehemiah find his confidence when he was looking over the ruins of Jerusalem? And those, those people who couldn't find it in themselves to rebuild that city. They didn't find their confidence in themselves. No, they looked in faith to God. They found their confidence outside of their selves in their God. They looked to God, to the God who's faithful to his covenant, to the God who's faithful to his call, to the one who has proven his faithfulness by sending his son Jesus Christ to die for sin and to rise as the first fruits of a new life. Jesus Christ is our confidence and Jesus Christ must be our confidence the confidence of the church. He said in John 15, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If your confidence isn't in Jesus Christ, he says you're useful for nothing but to be tossed out and thrown in the fire. We find our confidence in ourselves to our own destruction. We must look outside of ourselves to Jesus Christ. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And so the church is the communion of those who live by faith in the Son of God. Those who are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Those who who carry around the pain of the cross of Jesus Christ, knowing that they also share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Those who trust in Jesus Christ are, are all drawn together. We all share communion in that. We become a body. We become a body of Jesus Christ. It's true that the New Testament does speak about the church in, in abstract terms, but the, the emphasis in the New Testament when speaking about the church is definitely on the local body on the congregation of believers who are united in Jesus Christ. Those who share together with one another real and meaningful fellowship. That's where the the emphasis is when we speak about the church. And that's captured beautifully by the catechism when it says that at the end of, of this confession about what the church is, it says, and I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. I believe But by looking in faith to Jesus Christ, I have confidence that I am forever united in him, united with him. And that I'm a member of his body. And that I'm a member of his church. And not merely a a member, like my name's on the right line somewhere, or, or I have the right card in my wallet, or something like that. No, a living member. Faith leads to living membership not dead. And there will be more on this. There is more on this in the catechism in the next question and answer. More of a practical direction. But still, we consider living faith today. That membership in the church is not membership in a club. It's membership in a body. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a member of a body? Well, the word for for member in the New Testament is body part. We talk about being a member of the church. That's what we're talking about. You're a body part of the church. You're a functioning body part. 
Every member of the church of Jesus Christ is a, is a vital member, must be a vital member, must function in the body together with the rest of the body. Every member, Paul says, has been given gifts by the Spirit to use for the edification and blessing of the other members to work in harmony with the other members of the church. This is both humbling and encouraging. Paul says, in in light of the fact that we've been given these gifts by the Spirit, that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. You're not the whole body. You can't do everything in the church, and you shouldn't try. You're not the whole body. You're just one part. You're not called to do everything that the whole church is called to do at one time. Your task in the church might not be the most prominent one. But yet, if by faith you are a member of Christ, then you're called to be a living member of his church. Then you do have this important place in the body as a body part of the church. The existence, the identity, and the confidence that the church has in Jesus Christ is your existence and your identity and your confidence. Because you belong to the church. You're a living, vital member of it. And the church belongs to Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.